Good morning, and welcome to St. Rose Community Church. We are glad that you have joined us for worship. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're back in the Gospel of Mark this morning, Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 42. Mark 14, 26 through 42. So as you have been well aware, uh, we've taken a quick detour from the Gospel of Mark over the last four weeks, but today we journey back in, and as we started Mark 14 a few weeks ago, the direction and the narrative has changed. Not so much even changed, it's got more focused once we started Mark 14. Starting in chapter 14 we enter into what is popularly known as the passion narrative. As the passion narrative. And the passion, of course, refers to the suffering and the crucifix death of Jesus Christ himself. Where we were at in Mark about four weeks ago or so, we saw Jesus having his last supper, his last meal with his disciples. And today... We continue on that journey that Jesus is making toward the cross, toward Calvary. And I forgot to say it, but right now, threes and four-year-olds, if you haven't, have yet, if you haven't left yet, threes and four-year-olds are dismissed your classes, fumbled that one. So, uh, yeah. Okay, we're good. Uh, so, back to what I was saying, Jesus is making his way towards Calvary, and today we get to listen in on the prayer that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as I was studying to preach this week, I felt just keenly aware of my inadequacy. I felt just very keenly aware of the fact that I am not fit to bring such a sacred and weighty text before you, but I was helped in my preparation by Charles Spurgeon. Uh, I read Charles Spurgeon when he preached this passage, and this is what Spurgeon said about this very text. He says, Since it would not be possible for any believer, however experienced, to know for himself all our Lord endured in mental suffering and and hellish anguish, it is clearly far beyond the preacher's capacity to set it forth to you. Jesus himself must give you access to the wonders of Gethsemane. As for me, I can but invite you into the garden. So this morning, I invite you into the garden. Let's go and and allow Jesus to give us access to what is going on. So Mark 14, chapters 26 through 42, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, slip up your hand. We've got uh, guys who are just ready to give you Bibles. So if you don't have a copy of God's Word, slip up your hand. Uh, But if not, we will just continue on to this text. It will be on the screen. Mark 14, verse 26 through 42. uh, So they had just taken the Lord's Supper. And when they had sung a hymn, verse 26, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, 
I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to them, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they, all the disciples, said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and, did not know, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray that God would bless his time, our time in the Word. Lord, we praise your holy name. You alone are worthy. You alone are worth our highest praise. You alone are worthy because you created all that is. You sustain all that is. And Lord, you have revealed yourself in the Bible so that we can know you and come to saving faith in the message of the gospel. So I pray this morning, as we enter into the garden, we pray for, number one, that you would just open up our eyes to see. Lord, we need you. Pray that you would unstop our ears to hear. I pray that you would open up our minds to behold the wonders of Calvary, Lord. And I pray that we would not be familiar with glory. I pray that we would not be familiar with texts that we are, we would not be too familiar with texts that we know. But I pray that you would strike afresh what, what your son suffered on Calvary for us. Lord, we just ask that you would, you would do a work in us today. Strengthen us and, and call us in a fresh way to repentance and life in you. Sanctify us by your word, Lord. Your word is truth. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Jesus suffered. Think about that, that thought with me. Jesus suffered. 
what comes to your mind when you think about the suffering that Jesus withstood. I know for me, my brain, if you had asked me this before this week, my brain would automatically go to the crown of thorns placed on his head, the whipping, the, 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 the nails being driven through his hands and feet. The spear drove through his side. But before our minds go straight to the scenes of familiar movies like Passion of the Christ where Mel Gibson portrays Jesus and, it's, and we see the gory physical nature in which Jesus suffered. Before we think about that, let's first see the suffering in this passage that Jesus endures. Mark invites us into this scene and it is clear that Jesus is in anguish. As we peer into this scene this morning, the mystery of the incarnation is on full display. Jesus, fully, truly God, fully, truly man, suffering, troubled, anguishing. We see Jesus, the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, feeling and experiencing the depth of human suffering. So I want us to look at three ways this morning, three ways in which Jesus suffered. So three ways that w- in which Jesus suffered, and then at the end, we'll look at three lessons for, that we can learn from the garden. So first, three, uh, three ways in which Jesus suffered in the garden. Number one, Jesus suffered alone. Truth number one, Jesus suffered alone. Before we even get to the garden of Gethsemane, we first encounter Jesus foretelling Peter, remember Peter, Jesus's, one of Jesus' closest disciples, the rock on whom the church will be built, Peter, verse 29, Peter says to him, after Jesus says, hey, y'all are all going to leave me, Peter says, even though they all fall away, I will not. Uh, and Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he says emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And this is not the first time that we have seen Peter telling Jesus that he's got it wrong. Remember in, in Mark 8, 9, and 10, Jesus three times foretells his disciples, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. And the first time we see that in Mark 8 you guys remember how Peter responds? Mark 8, verse 32, what does he do? He takes Jesus aside and he says, he, it says that he rebukes him. And then Jesus famously answers with, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what the plans of God are. So, so at first, Jesus, I mean, Peter denied that Jesus would even suffer. But now, Peter's tone is a little different. The reason why Peter is upset is a little different. Peter has accepted that Jesus is going to suffer, as he said. If you see in our text, he doesn't say, this isn't going to happen. He doesn't say that, but what does he say? He says, okay, I know you're going to suffer, Lord, like you said, but what does he say? I'm going to suffer with you. I, you got me. I am with you, Jesus. You can count on me. I'm going to be right beside you. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Even if it costs me my life, I am with you you, Jesus. But Jesus knows, and now we know what happened. Just as Jesus foretold that very night, what does Peter do? Denies him, not once, not twice, 
but three times. Look at that account with me at the end of Mark chapter 14, verses 71 through 72. It says this. So this is the third time Peter says, but he, or it says, but he, being Peter, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know whom you speak. I don't know this Jesus guy. It says he curses himself. And it says before the rooster crows, I mean, he remembers what Jesus said to him. And then it says he broke down and wept. And then as we peer into the garden of Gethsemane, what do we see? As Jesus has the tendency to do, Jesus brings along his three closest buds, Peter, James, and John, and he pulls them in to, to, to follow him. As he isolates himself, he brings along these inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, to, to come a little further, to, to suffer with him, to watch and to pray, to fight the fight with him, to walk the walk with his suffering. But instead of watching and praying, what does our text tell us they do three times? They fall asleep. Peter, the man who said, I'm in the trenches with you, Jesus. I ain't leaving you. He couldn't even stay awake to pray with Jesus. James and John, the brothers who arrogantly and pridefully asked, can we sit at your right hand, Jesus? And what does Jesus say? If you can drink the cup I drink, and if you can be baptized in the baptism which I baptize, you, sure. What do we see Peter, I mean, what do we see James and John doing? Not doing the things they said they could do. <laughs> and, 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 and not once, not twice, but three times sleeping on the job. The first time Jesus finds Peter and the brothers asleep, he confronts them in verse 37, and he says this. He says, and he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, I mean, yeah, he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour, verse 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation? Jesus knew that temptation was coming their way. Temptation to leave Temptation to not be associated with Jesus. Temptation to sinfully turn the other way and not be associated with the guy who was dying on the cross. And he instructs them to pray, to fight temptation, to fight for spiritual, just being spiritually awake. But Jesus' closest friends could not stay by him. Jesus' closest friends and disciples abandoned him. And just to make the point even clear, Mark in the, uh, Mark fourteen fifty, Mark says this. After Jesus is betrayed and arrested, verse 50, they all left him and fled. As Jesus, uh, as Jesus is making his way towards Calvary, the point is clear. He's making his way alone. Without the support of anyone that he loves and cares for. So I just want... I want you guys to think about times where you felt alone. Think about the most, just, just the times where you have felt so alone. Like no one was in your corner. Like you could turn nowhere. Like you were just, you, you were isolated. I remember, and this is going to sound kind of trivial, but I remember after my freshman year of college, I felt alone. Uh, it was a hard and sanctifying year for me. That summer was a hard and sanctifying summer. Uh, my parents had moved to a new town. When I lived with them, I didn't know anybody. 
Um, I had confessed my love for my now wife, Bethany, and she had rejected me. Uh, it worked out, but I was, that hurt. I was experiencing heartache. I had just uh, had knee surgery a few months before, and I was struggling with that. Um, I, yeah, that summer I had packed up, and I had actually had an internship in Georgia where I went to work at a church plant, and I failed. Like, I, I crashed and burned, and I came home early, and I was questioning, like, if I was even, like, going to do ministry, if I was even, if I was cut out for this, and I crashed and burned, and I found myself before my sophomore year of college feeling alone. That's the thing. I felt alone. What was the reality? My parents were upstairs. <laughs> my mom and dad were literally up the steps from me. I could have gone to them anytime and told them how I'm feeling. My friends, Bethany, were a call away. If I had called or texted, they would have been there, however long it took to get there, in a second. I felt alone, but I was not alone. Jesus was alone. He suffered alone. He did not just feel alone. He indeed was alone, betrayed by Judas, left by his friends, his disciples sleeping in his hour of need, and he, on the way to the cross, where he would bear the weight of our sin upon himself alone. Jesus alone would cry out on the cross, Mark fifteen twenty two. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered alone. Second way we see Jesus experiencing suffering in the garden, Jesus suffered deep in his soul. Jesus suffered deep in his soul. The scene is quite the change in the narrative that we've seen so far. So far, we have seen Jesus confidently and un, un, just like, a beeline towards what's going to happen. Confidently, no doubt about it. This is going to happen. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And he's taking disciples with him. Let's do this. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, he does that. He says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. Be ready for it. I mean, we've seen Jesus multiple instances in the Gospel of Mark, toe-to-toe with the religious elite, with his enemies. And he doesn't shrink down, not for a second. We see, uh, I mean... But listen, I mean, just listen to the change in the garden. Verse 33, halfway through. When he enters in, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. As we said, the humanity of Jesus crystal clear for us to see. As Jesus begins to wrestle with the idea and starts to contemplate what's going to take place at the crucifixion, our text says that he is so sorrowful it feels like he is dead. Before we see physical death, he experiences emotional and death of the soul. In the garden, he prays in the midst of his suffering. He pleads with God, verse 35. He falls 
on the ground and prays, if it's possible, Lord, remove or, or, or let this hour pass from me, he prays. And we can't help but think of the psalm. I mean, when I was studying this, I can't help but think of the psalms, which encapsulate the depth of human suffering, and then apply this to Jesus' moment. I mean, psalms like 130 verses 1 and 2, where the psalmist says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. He's in anguish. And if you don't see clearly the anguish that Jesus is in, listen to the parallel account of the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22, verse 44. We, all, we know this pretty well. It says, And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Agony. But what, what, what causes Jesus to be in such agony? We see that in the content of Jesus' prayer and what he prays for. Look with me at verse 36 again. And he said in his prayer, in his suffering, and in his anguish, deep in his soul, Abba, Father, personal God, all things are possible for you. Here it is. Remove this cup from me. There it is. The main appeal that Jesus makes here, not once, not twice, but three times, is that Jesus, is that God would remove the cup that is now in Jesus' possession. And, and, and this cup, you might be asking, what does that mean? What is, what is the cup that Jesus is referring to? Well, well, it's clear in the Old Testament, I mean, we see multiple times where the cup of, uh, sorry, I, I should have answered what that is first before I dove into it. The cup refers to the wrath of God against sin. The cup of wrath. God's wrath. God's holy, righteous wrath against sin, sinners, sinful nations. In the Old Testament, we see multiple times where this cup of wrath is poured out on sinful nations. I mean, Isaiah 51, 17 says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15, thus the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all nations to whom I send you drink it. And this is why Jesus is so troubled. In his possession, in his hands, is the cup of God's wrath. It was the prospect of having his hands and soon his mouth taste the cup of God's wrath against the sin of the world. Listen, it was not just the prospect of dying. It was not just the prospect of dying that caused Jesus to be in such suffering and anguish. He could take that. He could take the physical, I mean, he could take it all, but, but the idea and, the, and the, the, the physical suffering, I mean, think about it. Like, he's prophesied his death three times. He's, he's, he's good with that. A few weeks ago, we saw the poor woman who all she had was the ointment and she anointed Jesus. What does she, he commends her for anointing his body for what? For burial. Last time we were in Mark, what do we see? Jesus eating the supper and commencing the supper that we still eat to this day, doing what? 
remembering his death. It was not the physical stress that caused him to be so distressed, but it was the cup of God's wrath that he now had. Jesus indeed saw himself confronted, not by cruel destiny that he thought was unfair, but by the judgment of God against sin. And this is what causes him to be sorrowful. C.J. Mahaney, who is a preacher, he, uh, he, he helps us understand this. He just helps us when he says in his sermon on this text, nothing in all the Bible compares to Jesus' agony and anguish in Gethsemane. Jesus is aware that he is facing something more than simply his own death. Not his own mortality, but the specter of identifying with sinners so fully as to become the object of God's wrath against sin. It is this that overwhelms Jesus' soul to the point of death. It was the prospect of Isaiah 53, 5 being fulfilled. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53, 10, the first part. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has to put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. It was 2 Corinthians 5, 21 that caused the soul distress. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And he prays, Abba, Father, let this cup pass from me. He staggers at the thought of taking the cup upon himself. Commentator William Lane helps us understand this when he writes in his commentary on Mark, the dreadful sorrow and anxiety then out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror at the prospect of alienation from God, which is entailed in the judgment upon sin, which Jesus assumes. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven opened up before him. And he staggered. He staggers, not at the thought of death, not at the thought of abandonment by his friends, but in anticipation of being abandoned by God the Father on Calvary. I don't know what, I'm not a Trinitarian scholar, but there's something happening where God's wrath is poured out on God the Son. He suffers alone, and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, what horrors of Calvary. What, what, what horrors they really were. And Jesus appeals for another way. If there's another way, he says in verse 36, remove it. If there's another way, Jesus makes that appeal three times, like we said. And at, each, at the end of each appeal, do, we know, do you know what Jesus hears? Silence. Divine silence. At the end of each, I mean, uh, he, he sees and hears not heaven opened up before him, as William Lane says, but hell and the wrath of God against sin. His appeal for another way 
is met with this answer, no other way. And that leads us to our third way we see Jesus suffering in the garden. Truth number three, Jesus suffered with unwavering obedience. Jesus suffered with unwavering obedience. He prays, after he prays, let this cup pass from me, verse 36. Hadn't read it yet. I'm about to read it. Yet not what I will, but what you will, is what Jesus prays. There it is. We must not for a second be mistaken that in Jesus' staggering at the thought of his crucifixion, at the thought of the wrath being poured out on him, in his staggering it meant that he sinned. In no way did he sin in his suffering. His stagger is not betrayal. It shows the horror of what is going to take place. And as we said earlier, there is no other way for that to take place. The crucifixion, the pouring out of the wrath has been plan A from the beginning. Only Christ could take it. Only God himself could be both just in executing judgment on sin and the justifier taking the wrath of sin upon himself that sinners go free. Only he is the just and justifier. And, and that's been the plan. That's the plan. We see in the Old Testament prophecies point to this plan. And he suffers. Jesus knows this is the plan. He suffers with unwavering obedience to the Father's plan. We see his struggle. Man, we, we, we see his struggle, but we also see his resolve to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look at verse 41 and 42 with me. He finds him sleeping a third time, and he says, you guys have got to be kidding me. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Remember, Jesus prayed, if it possible, the hour be passed from him. And now in verse 41, we see and hear Jesus emphatically say, it's enough. All the wrestling, all the praying, all the sleeping, it is settled, he says. The hour has come. Judas, who had betrayed him for a few bags of silver, he's now here. His company is on the way, and Jesus' physical death is imminent. No longer a thought, but the reality. Jesus knows this, and he is resolved in prayer to be obedient to the point of death. And so he rises. I love that it says that. It says in verse 42, rise. Let's get going. My betrayer is at hand. Jesus rises without sin to face the horrors of what is to come. Obedience. And don't miss this. Remember the first time in Scripture we're introduced to a garden? Genesis 1 through 3, right? How does that turn out for people? Not, not great. Adam, the first man, is tempted to sin, and he does sin. He turns away from God to take what he wants. And then through one man's sin, death enters into the world. The domain of darkness enters into the world. And now, and that's where we still are feeling it. Do we feel the world is broken? Indeed, we do. But now, here we are again, in a garden, 
another guy, another man, another temptation to sin, another chance for sin and death to really win. But now the second Adam, Jesus Christ, obeys the Father's will perfectly. Romans 5.19 says this, For as by one man's disobedience there were made... Let me read that again. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. William Lane, commentator again, writes this, Just as rebellion in a garden brought death's reign over man, submission in this garden reverse that pattern of rebellion and sets in motion a sequence of events which defeats death itself. Jesus suffered with unwavering obedience and praise God he did because no one else could do it. No mere man could do what he did. The author of Hebrews says this at this moment. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. We've seen it to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made complete, perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered alone. Jesus suffered deep anguish in his soul And Jesus suffered with unwavering obedience. So now I ask you, what does this mean for us? Like what what lessons can we learn from the Garden of Gethsemane? What What does the Bible have for us? Well, there are so many lessons that we could draw out from this text. So many. We could explore them for the rest of the day. But let me draw your attention to three. Three lessons from the Garden that we can take home and hopefully will change our lives. Number one, Gethsemane shows us how serious sin is. Gethsemane shows us how serious sin is. Remember, Jesus does not sweat drops of blood. Jesus does not feel deep death of the soul at just the idea of dying. But his anguish is at the thought of the very soon reality that he would drink the cup of God's wrath poured out on sin. The cup of wrath would be poured out on him. And listen, all of us in this room have sinned. All of us in this room have sinned. We have rebelled against a holy, just, perfect God. Every single one of us has contributed to the cup of wrath in Jesus' hands. Every single one of us has brought our ingredients to the cup and poured it in, adding to the weight of sin upon us and applied to, I mean, upon Jesus. This shows us that our sin is that serious. It drove Jesus to the garden to suffer in anguish. It drove Jesus to the cross to die for our sins. So our sins cannot be overlooked. Our sins cannot be brushed under the rug. Our sins cannot be dealt with in, a, in, a, in any other way. Number one, other than 
I mean, other than the Son of Man suffering for sinners. Our sins are that serious. Like this really happened, and it's because we disobeyed God. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, he writes this beautiful quote, when he, and I'm going to adapt it a little bit to where we're at. He says, before we, be, before we can begin to see the cross and the garden of Gethsemane as something done for us, leading us to faith and repentance, and I mean, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to obedience. As we face the cross, as we face the garden of Gethsemane, we can say to ourselves both two things. I did it. My sins sent him there. My sins added to the cup of God's wrath. And we can say, he did it. His love drove him there. And that leads us to our second lesson that we learned from Jesus in the garden. Lesson number two, Gethsemane shows us how great God's love is. Gethsemane shows us how great God's love really is for sinners like you and like me. How? What drove Jesus to the suffering that he endured? Yes, it was certainly, yes, it was certainly the obedience to the Father's plan, but do not overemphasize that point to the neglect of this one. His love drove him there. His love. His love for you is displayed in his willingness to suffer what you should have suffered. To suffer at the hands of sinful men and to suffer the wrath on himself. I'm reading a lot of quotes, but it's because they're really good. Charles Spurgeon says this in his sermon. The whole of the punishment of his people was distilled into one cup. No mortal lip might give it so much as a solitary sip. When he, being Jesus, put his own lips, put it to his own lips, it was so bitter, he well nigh spurned it when he prayed, let this cup pass from me. But his love for his people was so strong, he took the cup in both hands And at one tremendous draught of love, he drank damnation dry. For all his people, he drank it dry. He drank it all. He endured it all. He suffered all. So that now forever there are no flames of hell for us. No racks of torment. No eternal foes. Christ hath suffered all they ought to have suffered. And they must, oh we must, we shall go free. God loves us so much, so much. It was his love. It was his love that sent him there. Stronger than darkness, stronger than our sins, stronger than the sins of the world. Our sins are many, but his mercy, grace, and his love is more. So if, if you are here this morning and you have never felt loved, if you are here this morning and you have never felt God's love. Never experienced it. If you're here this morning and feel like you have sinned so much where God, I mean, it's nice that we read about this, but it can't really be true about you. Well, I've got really good news for you this morning. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, 
At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, he drank the cup dry. He drank it all. Jesus, both God and man, suffered in the garden because he loves his people and he loves you more than you can imagine. Like, and just think about it. If Jesus was willing to suffer all this and be obedient to it, there's no sin too great for him to overcome. There's no sin too great for him to cause you to repent and come to him. Like, he suffered it all, didn't he? He drank the cup of God's wrath upon himself. There's no sin too great. So if there's something holding you back, come to Jesus. He drank it for you. It's done. It is finished. And then the last lesson we see, last lesson we see from the garden, uh, lesson number three, Gethsemane shows us our sympathetic Savior. Gethsemane shows us our sympathetic Savior. Listen, in the garden, we've already said this often, but he, Jesus experienced the depth of human suffering. Listen, we will never know the profoundness, and praise God we will never know, the deepest ways in which Jesus suffered. In Christ, we will never face the cup of God's wrath that we deserve. In Christ, we will never face that fiery torment, but, but, but Jesus did. He experienced the depth of what it means to suffer. We have a Savior who knows what it's like to suffer. We have a Savior who knows what it's like to walk in the valley. We have a Savior who knows what it's like to be in the pit. So if you feel like you are in the pit, in the valley today, feel like you're walking in darkness, you have a Savior who knows more than you know what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to experience betrayal. He knows what it's like to suffer alone. So if you feel like you are alone, you are not alone because God is with you and he knows. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. So if you're suffering, come to your sympathetic Savior. Hebrews four fifteen through 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He can sympathize with your suffering because he too suffered. We have a mediator who knows deeper than we know. So draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace and help in your time of need. We're about to sing this song together before the throne of God above. And the lyrics to that song are this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name, your name, our name is graven on his hands. 
My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue, no tongue can bid us thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end, who drank it all, who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him, to look on us and pardon, or to look on him being Jesus, to look on Jesus and pardon us. Verse 3, behold him there, the risen lamb, our perfect spotless righteousness the great, unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hidden with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Let's pray. Lord, we confess our sin. Lord, far too often we are prideful. Far too often we neglect you. Far too often we look to our needs instead of seeing you. But Lord, we know that where our sins are many, your mercy is more. Lord, we praise you that in our sin you did not leave us to figure it out. But you had a plan from the fullness of time to drink damnation yourself. Uh, So I pray this morning that as we we look to respond, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. Lord, if we need to confess sin, I pray that you would cause us by your spirit to do that. If you need us to worship, you always need us to worship. But if you are calling us to to worship you in light of your holiness, in light of your sacrificial death and suffering for us, Lord, I pray by your spirit you would cause us to do that. Lord, help us not to be familiar with the glories of Calvary. So Lord, help us to to see you more clearly. Help us to worship now in spirit and in the truth of your word. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond in song.